Blog Talk Radio. Hello, welcome to tonight's edition of Students for a Better Future Radio, entitled The Woman in the High Castle or The People in the High Castle, um, with Judge Reed Chambers and Doreen Finkel, and we are live. And once again, folks, welcome to tonight's edition of our radio show. Uh, It was initially entitled The Woman in the High Castle. It's going to be changed to The People in the High Castle. Um, Very unique title because we have a a unique topic that we're discussing tonight. But before we get to that, I do want to remind you to check out our website. You go to studentsforabetterfuture.com. If you can make a donation, we are a 501c3 nonprofit that supports this radio station and among uh, um, other various projects we have going on in the community. Um, But tonight, um, this special topic, it's kind of a pressing one um, because we've talked about in the past how the United States has been rotting or from within, basically maybe even the West has been rotting from within. And um, the same goes and I looked at this last election, an organized political minority is more effective than an unorganized political majority. And so tonight we're going to ask ourselves, who are the minority and the majority in the United States? Um, And we're going to tell you that the United States is made up of many different nationalities, cultures, and religions. There are some cultures, however, who seek power to protect their own interests, and they do this, Um, to take control over powerful institutions like the media, education, government, and they spread propaganda that may or may not be true or accurate just to keep the majority population's attention from what this particular minority might be doing. And the type of propaganda that those who control these institutions um, promotes the five Ds, and this is how they do it, okay? They want to deny any wrongdoing, deflect any wrongdoing, divide the majority, deceive the majority, and in the end, they want to destroy the majority population. Um, So, again, we are talking about cultural Marxism, and that's a loaded term. And I want to introduce the judge. Hi, Judge. Hi, Doreen. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Isn't it a lo- isn't it a loaded term, cultural Marxism? Obviously, it's just a loaded one. Marxism right? is a is fighting words. Absolutely, Marxism is like unto what you scrape off your shoe when you step in it. And let alone we have cultural Marxism, to, and exactly. which includes po- political correctness. Um, oh, yes. Which I have I have said that has come from the Frankfurt School of Marxism, which was in the early mm-hmm. 1920s. Frankfurt School really was wasn't a school; it was like a social researching institute. Yeah. 
um, there's a think tank the, where these yes a, a think a think tank in, in Germany um, where these so-called communist intellectuals they recast Marxist communism from economics into cultural terms so they okay. transferred it it's not the original like Stalinism um, and these individuals what they did is they set out to undertake what they termed the long march through various pillars of western culture with the ultimate goal of a classless society a central government controlling all aspects of life their vision is fairly accurate rendered in the lyrics to John Lennon's song Imagine um, so what they did was they changed the economic form of Marxism, which is redistribution of wealth, and brought it into the into the cultural part. And and I and I know the judge is thinking over there, but what what I mean by cultural is that they included all this stuff like, um, for example, political correctness. Okay. Oh, I hate political correctness. Um, yeah. Okay. To uh, me, political correctness is a conspiracy to deprive an American citizen of their civil rights under the First Amendment, freedom of speech. They want to punish you for what you say and what you think. So it is also mind control. Yes. If they can control or, or, what you say, they also control how you phrase it, and how you think about it. Yes, or uh, sanction would be a good word, too. And, Judge, if you notice, like in the past 20 to 30 years, um, you you know the suffix phobic, P-H-O-B-I-C, has been added to words to create, like, new classes of um, what he calls antip- sociopath or antip- antipathy, like for example, right. words like claustrophobic and acrophobic, they were used to denote de- like negative states of mind relative right. to certain external stimuli. Um, but now, uh, what they did was take that suffix phobic and they put it on words like homo. Now you have homophobe, right. okay. Or Islamophobic, okay? And right. they, these words did not originate from the medical, but rather from the political community uh, ideological branch. So First uh, they frame the words and the phrases, and they control the conversation. And, and hence, then, you control the thought. Exactly. And um, and so you had people like Antonio Gramsci, the first fellow that comes to mind. Um, he was an Italian scholar. He was actually a communist. Um, oh. He, in, uh, and, and you also had George Lukacs in Hungary. They came to answer uh, Western culture and the Christian religion had so blinding the working class to its true, Marxist class interest that communism was impossible in the West until both could be destroyed in 1919. Um, and in 1919, Lucas asked, who will save us from Western civilization? And that same year, 
believe it or not, this fellow George Lukacs became deputy commissioner for culture in the short-lived Bolshevik Belikon government in Hungary. And one of Lukacs' first acts was to introduce sex education into Hungary's public schools. He knew mm. that he could destroy the West's traditional sex morals. He, he would have taken a giant step forward in destroying the West it, itself. So what he did was he, he actually, when he became the deputy commissioner of, of culture in, in this Hungary, he introduced sex education which was normally taught by the family. And he put it in the education system. So he took the parental rights away from parents teaching their own kids about sex and put it into the schools. Oh, yeah, and they even now change the curriculum name. It's no longer sex education. It's human development. So to make it sound nice, all they did was change the words. Exactly. I call it common they made core. The words benign. <laughs> uh, how clever that is. Yes. Um, uh, so now, at a very early age, Judge, we have our younger kids being taught sex education when they don't even yes. know what sex is about. It's totally so, correct. Right, And so, the, the edicts out of Washington, D.C., under the Obama administration, was that all schools accepting federal funds must teach homosexuality from a values-neutral perspective. Teachers cannot condemn it. So they can't say anything. But I would ask, as a parent, um, do their kids have to sit in that class? I don't know the answer to that. Um, well, that, that the answer to that is rooted in the popular notion that schools should be public. Public schools were introduced in the United States to counter Catholic schools. Up until public schools came about, uh, schools were the function of churches. So... Um, okay. So the there Protestants you go. wanted to blunt the influence of the Catholic Church and introduce the public schools to counteract that. So, does your pupil have to um, take these classes? Well, uh, this is why we want to advance the voucher program. You pay taxes to educate a child, but we don't want to diseducate the child with a bunch of leftist propaganda. So it's much better to uh, have a voucher system where we can designate which school we want our pupil to go to, and the uh, pupil then, uh, the parents give the voucher to the school, and the school cashes that voucher in the the treasury, and the tuition is paid. Okay. So... Uh, so basically, the parents have limited rights. That's why well, you, and in our the, society, we are the family is losing rights to um, government control. The erosion of uh, the powers of the people right. and of the family is not creeping but rampant. And, and that's one of the goals of the cultural Marxists. 
is to undermine the family. Um, Absolutely. And look how, what look how leftist people, public schools and state universities and colleges have become. A conservative cannot be invited by the college Republicans to speak on campus without a riot happening. And the only way that we're going to recapture our state colleges and universities from being in the laps of the Marxists is to change the way that the governing bodies of the colleges and universities are selected. So, for instance, if we had a state constitutional provision saying that the governor shall select a member of the governing body of the state university from a panel of three names supplied by the state Republican committee and a panel of three names selected by the state Democrat committee. And then those two names, the Democrat and Republican are uh, slate A and another Democrat and Republican become slate B and the governor appoints the two from slate A or slate B guaranteeing an equality on the governing body between the two conflicting political parties. And it's thought that if half of the governing body were conservative, that the liberals would lose control and having their way of everything. Okay. So that's how they came in, into being. Um, but yes. ultimately, it's always been the goal of the cultural Marxists to push this because their ultimate goal in the end is they want is they want a communist or leftist regime. Correct. Um, That's why I advocate that we need to amend our state constitutions to, at the state level, prohibit state and local socialism. If you cut the, uh, if you draw a line in the sand and say no socialism, you automatically bar communism. All communist states are socialist states. Um, so, okay, now let's go back to the the Marxist aspect of this. Um, there was another fellow, his name is Herbert Marcuse. He came out of the, the um, Institute, um, and he was the one that figured out how to convert economic Marxism into cultural, and it was his plan to... Um, Rouse up the the blacks, the students, the feminists, and the homosexuals, and that's what you had. You still have today, um, but you had a lot of riots in the '60s, student riots. Um, you know, the feminist movement and the homosexuals. Um, and what he did was was organize them. I, I have to say, these people. Even though I don't agree with their philosophy, they were clever. They were um, very clever. <laughs> uh, so I have to give them that much credit. Um, uh, but then what happened was when Hitler came into power in Germany in 1933, this Frankfurt school fled. They, and they actually came to New York City um, to Columbia University here, um, oh. which... Yes, they did, which um, they all became professors and they developed this thing called critical theory. And we see that on college campuses. We see critical white theory, critical this. 
and, and this critical theory is designed to criticize every traditional institution, again, starting right. with the family, brewery, and, and whatnot, um, and, and criticize anything Western. And if you are pro-Western, you are basically called a racist, sexist, fascist, or, or even mentally ill. So if you, you know, if you had choose to stay with your own kind, like, for example, another German marry another German, you could possibly bear the, the racist um, accusation on your back. And that's what this mm-hmm. seems to do. And I'll tell you, anybody, anybody who's called a racist And the odd thing about the leftist is they act as though being called a racist is the worst thing in the, in the world. But what they mean is uh, for a white to be racist. But if you are a black supremacist and you believe in the subjugation and you're anti-Caucasian, that's not racism. Uh, that's right. So a very one-way basically, we're, we're, right, we're living in a McCarthy-type era. If you even look white, you know you can be called a racist. That's a, yeah. it, and it's and and it's like what they did. Um, they included psychology in this, and it's become a form of psychological terrorism upon an individual. Mm-hmm. You know, because they can't say anything, they can't do anything. You know, um, they go for a job. Okay, and, you know, if they're white or whatever, they might feel that they're not going to get the job, even though they might be qualified for it. Yes. You know, it's it's, it's psychological terror, terrorism here. And so the, the question um, becomes, you know, we're in this state, and I think it's, I think this is like the German Weimar Republic, some people will call me out on that, but I, I do think it is, <laughs> uh, you know. But how do we overcome such a thing? What do we do? That's the whole thing. We have to um, recognize and condemn evil and equate cultural Marxism with evil. We have to equate socialism with evil. We must mandate that in order to pass high school, that the students shall have a, the, a course of study on the evils of communism and socialism and dictatorial um, um, role. We need to teach Western civilization, and the republic form of government is superior to um, mobocracy. It's superior to oligarchy. It's very superior to dictatorships. And we're already starting to see Americans saying, well, um, democracy, democracy works here, but it won't work everywhere. And there's places where it won't work at all. Meaning, for instance, countries with Sharia law are best left mm-hmm. to this dark ages that you know, system where women are kept in subjugation, um, 
the Ayatollah says it's okay for men to have sex with goats. It's okay for men to have sex with young boys. It's uh, okay for um, a Muslim to be a pirate or to um, steal or rape or otherwise um, dehumanize anyone who's not a Muslim. So that, that structure is not good for anybody. What is good for the world is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights adopted by the United Nations in 1948 when Mrs. Franklin Roosevelt, the widow of the late president, was appointed UN envoy by President Truman. And not knowing what to do with her, they put her as chairman of the Human Rights Commission. And she took her job seriously and pounded through the UN Declaration of Human Rights, which is the Bill of Rights modeled on the American model. Even the Russians voted for it. So when people say, let's establish Sharia law in Muslim enclaves in America, I say, I'm sorry, that violates the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights because Sharia law provides that thieves will have their hands cut off, and that's prohibited under the UN Declaration as torture. So. Uh, we need to educate everybody, women included. Um, women need to have the right to own property, to divorce, to own their own business, have their right of um, uh, self-determination. And self-determination is really sexless because when the mob has determination for how you think and what you say, that's cultural Marxism. When we enjoy self-determinism, that is when we as individuals and then our family unit prevails. We want to raise our children. We want to teach our children um, our viewpoints from religion to politics to getting along well with others. And when they say that it takes a village to raise a child, what they really mean is parents step back. The government is going to indoctrinate and to use the uh, schools as propaganda disinformation uh, units of government, and we're going to um, take a broad brush and eliminate all the ills of communism and socialism that they should be taught and be taught instead Isn't it more fair if we just all shared what we had equally? Well, sharing all equally is socialism. No one is allowed to have a better car than their neighbor. No one is allowed to have a three-bedroom home if everyone else has a two-bedroom home. So we want to excel based upon our own accomplishments and our own hard work. And hard work is not what happens in socialism. In socialism, the workforce pretends to work because the government pretends to pay. That is why right. socialist states always fail. That's why there's no goods on the shelves for sale in socialist country stores. That's why everybody lines up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's communism the same is, thing. is merely... If you take socialism and you put in a police state, you've got communism. 
So there's socialist countries like Sweden that don't have a police state, so they're not communist. But like the rock band ABBA, they made hundreds of millions of dollars, but they were not allowed to keep it. They ended up paying 85, 90% of what they earned as taxes to the government of Sweden. Because under socialism, you're not allowed to excel. Right. So basically, when you transfer that into the um, into the cultural Marxism, it's saying that the majority class can excel because they yes. have to have a certain amount of minority in each one's position, whether they're well, qualified or not. The things that socialism and eventually communism, which is socialism militarized, um, hates is personal property rights, personal property freedoms, and uh, um, free enterprise. Those are the things that uh, socialists and communist states, and you'll see emanating out of the leftist-controlled trade unions a hatred of corporations. This is weird. Because every union contract is with a company that provides a paycheck. They work for a corporation. But the unions, who are led by communists, teach their rank and file to hate corporations. Strange. But when you get an anti-corporate Yeah, because they see them as the enemy. Yes. Corporations are the enemy. What they're really saying is free enterprise is the enemy. We have creeping socialism right. even at the municipal level. Let me give you an example of creeping socialism at the city level. The city might pass an ordinance that there will be only one trash collection company allowed in town, and all the trash companies will bid for the right to pick up citywide garbage. And whoever is the low bidder gets the entire city. Now, this eliminates all competition. We create a monopoly. Then the city gets involved in the business even further by acting as the collection agent for the trash company. So they take the city water bill and they add a line item for trash collection. The city collects the money for the trash company, pays itself a collection agent fee, and gives the change to the garbage company. Translation, the fee the city charges is the hidden tax on garbage. The monopoly has destroyed free enterprise. You have no choice who your trash collector is going to be. And what would happen if you tried to buy a garbage truck and go into business against the monopoly? It's against the law. The city prohibits you can't get a city occupation license. And this violates equal protection under the law. Socialism is even prohibited in the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, the seeds of which are that no private property shall be taken for a public purpose without compensation. So they can't nationalize a business, private property. Oh, okay. That's that making interesting. sense? Um, yes. Okay. Hold on. I believe we have our guest on. Uh, Jared, is that you? Can you hear us? Yes, I can hear you. Okay, you are live. Um, welcome to our show. Um, Thank you very we were much. We're talking about about um, we went from economic Marxism 
translated it into the cultural Marxism, which is rotting us from within. Um, and we were talking about how, because uh, I had mentioned how right now the, the Europeans are still in the majority in the United States, but they are being denied job opportunities because of the, the Marxian way of saying that you have to hire a certain amount of these people, a certain amount of this one, whether they're qualified for the job or not. But anyhow, um, this is Jared Taylor. He, he runs a, um, a group called American Renaissance, correct? Yes, that's correct. Um, can, you give me a little, can you give me a little background about yourself? Certainly. I started American okay. Renaissance... I started American Renaissance in 1990, so it's been going on okay. 27 years now. And it's an organization that explicitly tries to articulate the legitimate interests of whites. After all, every okay. other group in the country has publications and pressure groups and organizations that attempt to further their interests, uh, often at the expense of whites. And uh, American Renaissance recognizes that we, the founding stock of the United States, have certain interests that are important to defend, and that if we don't defend them, certainly no one else will. Uh, okay, so what, um, we've been talking about this in the job force, okay? I, I mean, I, I know I see it, you know, particularly where my husband works and, and all over the place, um, the thing is to diversify. And I'll be honest with you, I don't have a problem with, with um, you know, with the other groups. You know, many wonderful individuals. But my issue with this is, um, is if these people are more qualified than a, for example, a Western European. And in some cases, it hasn't been. They, they've had the corporations are going towards pushing the diversity, and they're getting less qualified people in there. Well, I object, for instance, to the Black Chamber of Commerce and the Black Miss America and the Black this and the Black that. But if we had a White Chamber of Commerce, they would call us racists. Of course, that's correct. Um, that's it's correct. because whites. Whites are the only group that uh, is not allowed officially to have any kind of organizations or institutions or aspirations just for us. White history to ask, to ask whites to celebrate diversity is simply to ask them to celebrate their own dispossession, their own shrinking numbers, their own dwindling influence. No healthy people would ever do this. It's understandable that every other racial group should diver should celebrate diversity because diversity always comes at the expense of whites. It means more Asians, more Hispanics, more blacks, more Muslims, more Hindus, anybody but us. And when corporations announce they're going to spend millions of dollars trying to promote diversity, it means exactly as you say, that they're going to try very hard to try to employ and promote people that look uh, unlike us. And uh, this, under any other circumstances, would be called institutional racism. But if the victims of this process are whites, then it's called promoting diversity, and it's supposed to be just fine. 
Well, just like the open borders with Mexico, in effect, the United States government is mandating that the white majority shall become the white minority in a certain number of decades, just by flooding new residents. I wouldn't call it – we don't have an open borders policy per se. We have always had a border. It's just that we don't uh, expend much time and effort enforcing our immigration laws. If the immigration laws that are on the books were enforced, after all, as the laws are written now, the United States government has the right and the duty to find illegal immigrants wherever they are and send them home. That was the purpose of the laws. It's just that under so many presidents, Democrat and Republican alike, there has been very little appetite for enforcing those laws. That's right. Um, but getting back to the corporations, um, Jared, um, it, here's how it hurts the, the Europeans, okay, the white Europeans in particular, because, you know, if we don't get that job, we can't support our family. You know what I'm saying? And and we might not have X amount of kids because of it. Well, of course. Um, people who can't find employment have a terrible time making a living. But uh, this doesn't really stop many non-whites from having children. There are plenty of non-whites who go on welfare and have uh, a larger number of children than whites. The fertility rate for Hispanics, for example, is above replacement, whereas it is not for whites. But uh, Hispanics are vastly more likely than whites. Uh, Well, um, depending on what kind of program you're looking at, they may be two to three to five times more likely to be whites on public assistant-type programs. So Hispanics, uh, who are more accustomed to living at uh, a kind of a poverty level than we are, they're perfectly happy to live on welfare in many cases, and that doesn't stop them from having children, unlike whites who prefer not to be on welfare. And if they are on welfare, they many of them feel ashamed, and they find themselves constrained, and uh, they're less likely to have uh, to, ha- to have uh, children, even if they're not on welfare, even if they have a certain amount of, uh, uh, of economic power. But uh, I believe that one of the reasons that whites do not have children, I can't prove this, is this prospect of becoming a minority, and this idea that somehow we are the villains of history, somehow that uh, we are responsible for the failures of others. And I think that deep, in a kind of unconscious level, almost all whites realize that as our numbers decline, as we do become a minority, we are likely to become a hated and despised minority, if already we are criticized from what is supposed to be unearned white privilege. What's it going to be like when there are more and more of people unlike us who still will not be succeeding at the way whites do, Hispanics and blacks, even if they're a majority, they will not be as wealthy or well-educated as whites because they just don't have the same abilities as we do. But we will be blamed for their failures, and the more of them there are, the fewer of us there are, then we will be decried as even more evil than ever before. I think there's a very good chance that that will be the fate that awaits our children and grandchildren. Well, I think we're seeing this now where the leftists are – uh, treating and demonizing uh, conservative blacks and conservative women. If they stand up and say anything, uh, the conservative black is called an Uncle Tom. A woman is shouted down. 
uh, unless they go with the leftist program, you are stereotyped and despised, hated, assaulted. Very much so, very much so. Uh, Unlike the caricature that the left paints of the right, it's in fact the right that tends to be more tolerant and more accepting. You don't find conservatives running around shutting down meetings and speeches by liberals. You don't find uh, Trump supporters going to the rallies of Hillary Clinton supporters and uh, inflicting violence on them. You just don't find this at all. No, the left, the left, which is always accusing the right of being proto-fascistic, intolerant, bigoted, potentially violent, it is the left that is showing just how utterly intolerant and bigoted it is and how very hair-triggered prone to violence it has become. Well, we see the violence from the riots after the Trump election. We see yeah. the fires that they're starting at uh, at Berkeley, for instance. Sure. Um, they're relying on the majority white um, population to not rise up and uh, nip it in the bud. Well, whites don't riot. Whites almost never riot. The last time true. whites actually rioted for racial reasons was uh, there was a riot in Detroit, 1947-1948. That's really the last time whites have really taken the street in any kind of violent way to express their interests as whites. Now, occasionally white students will do some violent things to celebrate the victory in a football game or something like that. Right. But a white political riot, well, yeah, suppose what happened at the Democratic Convention in 1968 could be called a riot. Uh, but that was, again, a riot by lefties, not conservatives. Oh, that was, was a communist-orchestrated uh, attempt to uh, dissuade America from con- prosecuting the war in Vietnam. Yes, that's right. It was all against uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey. But when's, when's the last time conservatives have ever rioted? When's the last time conservatives, other than some sort of uh, crazy... Well, let me give uh, you an example in 1968. When Bobby Kennedy was murdered, there were no riots. When Martin Luther King was murdered, there were riots. So the blacks riot when their leaders are killed, the whites do not. No, uh, of course. Uh, You've got this whites lack lack a tribal mentality. Whites are much less tribal than any other group on earth today. You find this across the globe. Why is that? Because every time we try to organize... Because we're tolerant. It's like the, the, well, we weren't always tolerant. Whites used to have a very vivid okay. sense of tribe. Okay. It's only within the last 70 or 80 years that whites have been denatured in this way. And uh, uh, I have some theories about this, but they're complicated and they're not very satisfactory. Suffice it to say... So what you're really that, saying is after the Russian Revolution then the white identity began to diminish. So is there a correlation between the communist attack on American society and the um, withering away of white white consciousness? No. I think the two have nothing to do with each other. Because, after all, it's in the former Iron Curtain countries where you still have some sense of racial consciousness. It's uh, countries like Hungary, Slovakia, Poland, Czech Republic, 
that absolutely refuse to accept any immigrants, despite the fact they're part of the European Union. In Russia, uh, they will they would never accept Syrian refugees. It is the Eastern Europeans who have not been exposed to these recent Western poisons. They are the parts of the world where whites still have some sense of tribe. So no, it has nothing to do with communism. Communism, in fact, the Iron Curtain uh, that kept out Western influence. That's what protected the East Europeans from the kind of mental poisons that, from which we are all dying in the West. What's the remedy? The remedy is to speak out. Uh, and I'm afraid that if the generation that is now in its 20s fails to act, then except for certain parts of Eastern Europe, uh, the white man is, is basically doomed to dispossession. It will happen most rapidly in the United States and Canada, where non-whites are arriving at a significant. Well, um, and, but will they be able to take advantage of this, the um, uh, affirmative action when they go to minority, or that, or that all goes out the door for everybody? Well, you mean are you well, saying once the whites are in the minority, the affirmative action laws will be repealed. Yes. Spanish yeah. will no, become the official language. Change. They will isolate no. whites in our own little communities and uh, subjugate us. I don't think they'll isolate us. So they'll make sure that every, anything that was desirable that we have created, any pleasant place to live where whites are, they will forcibly invade and take part of it. And at the same time, it would not surprise me if in the name of reparations, if in the name of overcoming the effects of generations of unearned white privilege, it wouldn't surprise me if the United States uh, passed special taxes just for whites. Uh, I, can see, I can see all kinds of theoretical justifications for that. It is whites, uh, after all, who dispossessed the Indians, uh, who took uh, uh, what used to be part of Mexico, enslaved the blacks, and mm -hmm. we're blamed for anything that goes wrong for those people, past or present. And uh, why not have special taxes on just on whites so that uh, we can make up for all the terrible things we're alleged to have done to all of those poor people? I see that as entirely possible. Jared, uh, I want to um, tell you this incident that happened in New Jersey. We had a case, uh, the Mount Laurel decision recently went through, um, which states that um, for every suburban area in New Jersey for every single home um, now they got to build four low income housing for all the suburbs here and, well that's right um, the, the, the theory is yeah, that black yeah. the theory is that blacks in particular do poorly in school are more likely to commit crimes than whites and uh, more likely to go on welfare, have illegitimate children, shoot each other, etc. Uh, all of this is because uh, we wicked whites have created a particularly difficult environment for them. And their environment will improve if they are sent to nice middle-class areas. Somehow, by osmosis, they're supposed to absorb the values of the middle class. Well, it doesn't, doesn't happen, of course. Uh, they continue to be as they are. It makes no difference uh, where they live. Things will be more pleasant for them. It's more pleasant for blacks to have white uh, law-abiding neighbors than it is to have thug, gangster black neighbors. 
But uh, it does not mean that their test scores will improve or that their illegitimacy rates will go down or that uh, they are more likely to graduate from high school or go to college. But that's the theory, that integration is always a good thing. And the theory is that if whites wish to preserve their majorities under any circumstances, whether it's part of a neighborhood, part of an institution, part of a school, or even as part of a country, that this is an illegitimate desire and it's, and it's an expression of hatred for other people. Anyone who talks the way we are talking is decried as some kind of hate monger, whereas hate obviously has nothing to do with it. We just want to preserve our own people and our own society and our own culture. Yeah, um, and I, I want to tell you, I'm Italian and German, and and I'm proud of, of both. And you know, I love the cooking. <laughs> you know, every time I say, "Oh, Italians make great spaghetti and all that," you know, and talk about mm-hmm. it, but I might be called a racist. No, no, you you'll never be called a racist for being proud of Italian or ethnic ancestry. That's the one form of pride that is allowed to whites. You can say, I'm proud of my Polish ancestry. My grandmother made the greatest kielbasa ever. That you can say. But, so, but as soon as it takes a pan-European, any kind of racial tone, then that's what's considered illegitimate. But even though well, my skin happens to be white. And I'm an organizer. judge. I have personally organized over 500 Tea Party groups on Facebook, and the largest has over 20,000 members. Excellent. Are these Tea Party groups explicitly organized along the principles of uh, white racial awareness and consciousness? Conservative consciousness. I I don't know. Uh, Uh, Yeah, yeah, that's just it. That's another another thing. I, I think they're afraid. Yes, they are afraid. Practically all whites are afraid. Virtually every white, even if in his bones, he knows very well that it is disastrous for us to be reduced to a minority. He will almost never have the courage to say, hold on, I want to live in a majority white country. I want to live in a majority white neighborhood. I want my children to go to majority white schools. Almost no one has the courage to say that, even if they believe it. And so... Whites are getting what they deserve. If they don't have the backbone to stand up for their interests as a group, absolutely no one else will do so. Well, I don't want to live in a community if a bunch of whites are leftists. Well, you know, yeah. what's the point of having That's a bunch of socialists too. running my municipal government? Ultimately, ultimately, I really don't care if the whites who survive are leftists. I can't really say... What is essential to whiteness? Is essential whiteness Scandinavian socialism? I mean, that wasn't so bad for the Scandinavians before they started letting in Somalis and Iraqis and Hindus. Mm -hmm. It wasn't so bad. Now, or is essential whiteness 19th century American rugged individualism? That worked pretty well for 19th century America, too. I don't take a position on that. What I want is an opportunity for whites to pursue their destiny, whatever that is, whether it's Scandinavian socialism or whether it's libertarianism, in some way that is free from the embrace of others unlike ourselves. Now, socialists, as far as I'm concerned, socialist leftist whites 
their socialism, their leftism, comes out in anti-white terms. You all were just discussing cultural Marxism in which instead of the enemy being the bourgeoisie, the enemy is white people, heterosexual, white men in particular. Now, if white leftists have a racial consciousness, if they have some sort of loyalty to their own European ancestry, then maybe a leftist kind of redistributionist society just for whites is not all that bad. As I say, uh, the Danes, the Swedes, the Norwegians, they had a kind of society that worked for them. It started falling apart in a spectacular way when they started letting in non-whites who didn't fit in, who exploited the redistributionist policies of their white hosts. That is what helped pull down their liberal redistributionist socialist societies. Well, I am a rabid um, opponent of everything that's socialist. I want uh, rugged individualism, yes. I want free enterprise. I want private property rights. I want family rights. I want uh, a tax lid. I think if the state, local, and uh, federal taxes amount to more than 50% of your income, that the individual has become the wage slave of the state. Well, I agree with all that. Um, That is my preference as well. I tend to be a free market, uh, also free trade, uh, libertarian. And yet, Mm -hmm. if you have a society in which there is a great deal of coherence and fellow feeling, if whites really do feel as though their neighbors are, in some respects, their kinfolk, which is what you had in tightly knit Scandinavian societies, then they are inclined and they don't fight so much against the idea of being taxed in order to support people who are perhaps their neighbors and their relatives. Now, that's not my ideal of a society, but is the kind of society that can work in a, hom- in a homogeneous, very tightly knit society in which people share the same language, the same heritage, same religion, same culture, it's more likely mm-hmm. to work under those circumstances. Well, I do not mind being taxed to provide aid to the widow and to the orphan and to the disabled. <laughs> but I do object to being taxed to provide the wherewithal for the able-bodied who refuse to work. Well, certainly. I, I think that, almost, yeah, everyone, too, yeah. almost yeah. everyone hates that. And but That's uh, that, why I want to see universal conscription at age 18. That when people are out of high school... Unless they go to college, they go into military service, and they serve two years in the active duty military, two years in the Federal Reserve Forces, and two years in the National Guard. Well, that and then when those are in college, well, that wouldn't necessarily stop them from being welfare bum layabouts once they got out of the military. Well, something happens about age twenty-five, sometimes thirty. It's called growing up. Not everybody. And, well, uh, yeah, and uh, <laughs> uh, they are couch potatoes. There's no such thing as a couch potato that has a sergeant. Of course, you're talking about a massive, massive military infrastructure to handle those huge numbers of recruits, many of whom are probably low IQ, badly motivated. I'm not necessarily convinced that uh, a bunch of ghetto blacks in the military are going to be made into 
respectable citizens uh, just by going to boot camp. I don't suppose it would do them any harm, but it would take an enormous amount of I was of hoping that if they learned air traffic control in the military or how to operate a computer or something, that they would have a trade that when discharged, coupled with the ability to buy a home on the GI mortgage that, or even go to college on the GI bill or whatever, maybe. they'd be more productive citizens. Maybe. Maybe. I think also, that uh, they will never replace yeah. Obamacare uh, with something um, that makes sense. And if we... If everybody was a veteran, we'd have better veterans hospitals. But Jared, well, I ha- hold on yeah. a second. Jared, right. I have two sons. Um, you know, and, and I'm very concerned about their future. Um, you know, one is is uh, will be 21, and the other one is 17. One is going on to become a doctor, and the other one wants to be a physical therapist. You know, mm-hmm. and and I worry, I'm worrying about them, and I'm worrying about their children in this country. Well, rightly so. Uh, I think uh, the United States is facing a, an inevitable decline if it continues to be an increasingly diverse mishmash of people who don't get along. It will be a increasingly inept and incapable, incompetent, non-productive country to the extent that, be- that it becomes increasingly Hispanic and black. One statistic, there's just one statistic that tells you a great deal about what you need to know about the United States in the future. And that is, first of all, that blacks and Hispanics are considerably more likely than whites or Asians to drop out of high school. But those who remain, by the time they're in the 12th grade, The average black or Hispanic is doing math and reading at the average level of the white or Asian eighth grader. They are four years behind on average by the time they get to the end of high school. You cannot have a modern productive economy with a workforce like that. And as that proportion of the workforce increases, everything will gradually disintegrate. You simply cannot have a country that is at the cutting edge of technology, a country in which there's enough social capital for things to move smoothly with people who are performing at that level. Now, what's the, what's the solution? I've always, I've always said that we should stop immigration dead in its tracks. I don't think we need more people, for heaven's sake. And if we are to have immigration, I think we should restrict it to high IQ, well-educated, English-speaking white people who are obviously the group that will fit in the most easily with our society. I mean, it's for Hungarians and Polish. Mm -hmm. Some of them will, they they will, Europeans will always fit in better than non-Europeans, but the ones who will fit in most easily are English-speaking white people. Now, Hungarians and Polish, they will eventually learn English, but it will take some sort of, there'll be some sort of adjustment period. Now, the mm-hmm. fact is, English-speaking uh, white people, uh, there's a certain limit to the number of those folks, but Europeans will, after a generation or two, assimilate in a way that makes them indistinguishable from people who've been here for many generations. The same is simply not the truth, not true for people of other races, because race is the most difficult barrier to assimilation. Right. Um, so I like a lot now, of what you say. Said that, yeah. Go ahead, Judge. You want to ask? 
Mm-hmm. Well, I've been thinking about these things for a long time, and uh, if your listeners are interested in knowing more about people who view the demographic future of the United States in these terms and who are not completely browbeaten and intimidated by uh, egalitarian platitudes about these things, I welcome them to come to our website, which is uh, amren.com. Amren is short for American Renaissance. And if they come to amren.com, I think uh, your listeners will find a lot of interesting ideas, videos, and podcasts, and books for sale. Yes, I, I just want to ask you, um, is there anything at um, their disposal um, you know, if, for example, they feel that they were cheated out of a job on the kind of their skin color. I'm sorry to say we don't have a staff of lawyers. I wish we did. Uh, eventually, that may be possible. But we just don't have the resources to make that kind of help available to people. Uh, yeah, very uh, okay, but, is, but it's in the law that they cannot discriminate against white people, right? It depends on how the laws are interpreted. Uh, it well, of course they the discriminate against white people. Affirmative yes, action will see a minority in the place of a white person at a school, for instance. They discriminate against whites all the time. But in certain egregious cases, whites have, in fact, won settlements. Oh, there was a situation in Atlanta, for example, the Atlanta Public Library System just systematically got rid of all the white people. And they brought a suit in federal court, and some of the whites who were eliminated from library positions, they got back payment and settlements. It's not not absolutely unheard of, but it's much, much more difficult uh, to get the courts to apply the laws in an even-handed way. And when uh, uh, Eric Holder was running the Justice Department, it was filled with uh, so-called civil rights lawyers who were explicit about the idea that civil rights anti-discrimination laws were simply not meant to apply to whites. That that was a common exactly, sentiment. and that is uh, wow. horrific. That is a violation of our civil rights. That's why well, the see, black thugs uh, in Philadelphia that were taking clubs to the election polls were never prosecuted for voter intimidation because it was blacks doing the intimidating. And the civil rights laws don't apply to whites, and Holder said so. It, well, yes, uh, it, they they could they probably could have gotten uh, a very serious conviction under that case, and it was really on the point of going to trial, and uh, uh, probably any jury would have considered that an absolutely outrageous act of voter intimidation. But once Eric Holder got in, he called off the prosecution. Yes, it was right. uh, it was just an extraordinary act of ultimately anti-white political decision-making. Well, I'm well sorry there's to say, the, the other yes. phrase for anti-white is black supremacist. Yes. Right. Um, uh, J- but, Judge but. and Jared, we're, we're, actually, yes. uh, okay, we're actually running out of time. Yes. Um, Jared, if you can tell everybody your website again. Yes. Um, I run an organization called American Renaissance, and our website is www.amren.com, and I would welcome any of your listeners. And I'm Judge Reed Chambers, um, National Executive Director of the U.S. Tea Party Loyalists. We're on Facebook. Yes, and um, uh, Jared, I'd like to thank you for coming on our show tonight, and you're always welcome back. This is a hot topic. We're going to be doing a lot more on this. 
Um, and folks, stay tuned until uh, next week um, when we talk about Trump's presidency. And on behalf of the judge, and by the way, don't forget to go to studentsforabetterfuture.com to make a donation. That would be awesome. And we'll see you guys next week. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ray.